All right, let me uh, make an introduction. I actually have two introductions. One, uh, our new co-instructor, uh, give a brief int uh, introduction to him, and then an introduction to our session tonight. Uh, Professor Alan Gelzo, uh, I once wrote in a book review uh, where I uh, heaped lavish praise on his biography of Lincoln, Redeemer President, that he was a latecomer to Lincoln studies. What does that mean? I think he started looking at Lincoln after I did. <laughs> Why do I say this? I say it to be, to be all the more impressed by how much he has accomplished in such a short time. He's not won the Lincoln Prize once. He's won it twice, which is two times more than I have won it. Okay. I've published on Lincoln, apparently not as well. Uh, he won the Lincoln Prize, which is the most prestigious prize in the field of Lincoln and Civil War studies, uh, in my opinion, even more impressive than the Pulitzer. Uh, in 1999, I believe it is, for his biography, Abraham Lincoln, Redeemer President, one of the best uh, uh, Lincoln biographies published to date, in my opinion. And then he had the gall to win it again <laughs> a couple of years ago for his book, which we've uh, given to all of you, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Um, he's a student of American history, especially its uh, religious history. And so if you have any interest in that area, guys like Jonathan Edwards and others, um, he's got a lot to say about those figures as well. Uh, he used to be the dean of the Honor College uh, at Eastern College, and then finally can brag about the fact that he now has a Gettysburg address. Thank you. <laughs> He teaches at Gettysburg College now, and I'm, I'm certain that the students, as well as his colleagues there, are very pleased that he's landed there. Uh, what else do I want to say about Alan? Hopefully uh, nothing. Uh, uh, I'm just getting warmed up. Any more than that, libel's liable to be actionable. <laughs> I've gotten to know Alan because uh, when, you, when you study Lincoln, you start swimming in the same circles, swimming pond, uh, same ponds with these guys. And uh, oh, I actually want to say one more thing in terms of, of Alan's scholarship. It is now the case that uh, it is rare that a new book on Lincoln, especially one pre uh, published, you know, actually for, for the popular uh, press or, or an academic uh, publisher, it is rare that you will find a new book on Lincoln that doesn't mention Allen. He has cast a very tall or long shadow uh, in Lincoln studies. Even when they disagree with him, they have to talk about him in their books. Uh, so this is uh, quite a privilege uh, for us to have him, not just as a guest speaker, but to actually take us through uh, Lincoln for these next several days. Uh, so actually, let me have you welcome uh, Alan, and then I'll talk about our panel. <laughs> he also serves on the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Commission and a bunch of other stuff like that. All right. Uh, what we're doing tonight, uh, you've seen our uh, schedule. We, what we wanted to do today, instead of just doing what we did last time with uh, uh, the founding period, kind of take it chronologically, we're going to look at Lincoln and the Civil War period and the antebellum period chronologically for the most part. But for starters, we wanted to start in a way with what people are saying about Lincoln today. Uh, what is his reputation today? Uh, we're in Gettysburg. It, it seems like it should be a given or automatic that People obviously love Lincoln. Uh, but that, uh, as we know, and as you know now, having read these excerpts, uh, there, there is some debate about what Lincoln's legacy is. Is he still 
uh, a man for the ages, right? He, he, now he belongs to the ages, that famous comment uh, after he died. And so what we did was we culled a few of uh, the prevailing new theses or theories about what Lincoln was really up to, what he really thought about slavery, what he really thought about emancipation, what he really thought about the uh, presidential powers, what he really thought about uh, blacks in America, colonization, these sorts of things. Uh, critics from the left and from the right, black critics, white critics. Okay? Uh, what we wanted to, to, to do is uh, have you think through some of these uh, new approaches to Lincoln, and in some sense, uh, some of the theories that are being bandied about now really aren't, aren't that new, uh, but they're gaining some cachet among those who want to appear sophisticated about someone who appears to be one of the simplest uh, and humblest presidents uh, the United States has ever had. Uh, but before we do that, um, uh, what we're going to do is I'm going to have Alan, and then I will follow him, talk about why we study Abraham Lincoln. Um, how is it connected to anything else we're interested in, either personally or professionally? Uh, and in a way, have uh, uh, kind of a twin-barreled approach uh, to the subject of Lincoln, what, what, what we find of value in Lincoln. And once we're done doing that, then the stage will be yours. What we will want you to do at that point is fire away at us, fire away at Lincoln even, with the readings that we gave you tonight. What are the arguments that uh, Lerone Bennett, Michael Lind, uh, Tom DiLorenzo, and anybody else that we, we assigned for you tonight, what are their, what, what are their salient uh, uh, critiques uh, and, and readings and interpretations of Lincoln uh, that might pose us some problems? And then we'll see how this, uh, those critiques get answered uh, this week, especially as we look at Lincoln's own words. Lincoln defending himself, even better, I hope, than Alan or I uh, could do. Uh, so that's uh, my schedule for today. We started late, but I, I'm definitely, given our, our traveling day, we're definitely not going to go past 8.30, okay? So just a little more than an hour uh, today, and believe me, we've got, we're going to be talking about Lincoln for the rest of our time here in Gettysburg, so what we don't catch today, uh, we'll get uh, further down the road. Turn it over to Alan. Okay, thank you, Lucas. I want to take an opportunity as a Gettysburgian to, uh, yes, that's what, that's what they're called, um, to welcome you to Gettysburg, the most famous small town in the world, for reasons that I hope I don't even have to explain. Uh, talking about Lincoln in Gettysburg is, is even more fun because although Gettysburg was the host, albeit unwillingly, to the largest field of battle in the North American continent in our history. Uh, nevertheless, that event had a coda known as the Gettysburg Address. Uh, it was actually the dedication remarks made at the opening of the National Cemetery here in Gettysburg on November 19, 1863. Lincoln came from Washington, one of the rare occasions during the war when Lincoln peeled himself away from his desk and his office and journeyed someplace else. Uh, but came here to Gettysburg. He did not, if we want to be strict about our use of words, really deliver the Gettysburg Address. The Gettysburg Address, the two-and-a-half-hour address, was delivered here by Edward Everett. It is a two-and-a-half-hour address that it is safe to say next to no one remembers. <laughs> but Lincoln followed Edward Everett with 222 words 
delivered in about two and a half minutes, and that is what we remember from that event. Lincoln stayed overnight here in Gettysburg, came in on the train at the station, which is just down the block from the hotel here, and stayed at the home of David Wills, a lawyer in town who was the chief coordinator for the creation of the National Cemetery on the, the, the large white house on the square. Ignore the fact that it's a circle. Everybody calls it a square. <laughs> it shows you how really with it we all are around here. Um, and then the remarks and the entire ceremony, of course, were delivered up at the National Cemetery, uh, which uh, you can actually walk to. It's not all that much of a walk. Uh, down Baltimore Street uh, to uh, the Soldiers National Cemetery. And there you will find that nobody is entirely sure where exactly Lincoln spoke. I mean, they know, yes, it was the cemetery, but that's not good enough for Lincolnites. We need to know the exact GPS. Spot. Spot. Right. We want to know the spot where Lincoln actually spoke. And that, and that, right, and that we're not too sure of. Body Lincoln. That we're not too sure of, give or take about 10 or 15 yards. Now, 10 or 15 yards, that might mean not too much to you, but look, in Lincoln studies and in football, it means a lot. <laughs> So that much said, uh, welcome to Gettysburg. By all means, do buy souvenirs, and it's not like you will lack opportunity for it. Steinware Avenue is one great big fly trap for souvenir uh, buyers. But I have to tell you, with all the souvenir shops, I have to let a little secret out. Over where I live on the east side of the town, there is a large warehouse called Americana Souvenirs. All of the souvenir shops in town feed from that one warehouse. <laughs> No, they do not sell to the public. <laughs> so you just can't walk in. Sorry, no cut rate. But uh, it's always a matter of interest to me that uh, you know, they all really come from the same warehouse. So um, bear that in mind and try not to enrage uh, the, uh, the, the owners of these places by telling them that their secret uh, has been now made public. Lincoln, why bother with Abe Lincoln? After all, he died in 1865. This is 2006. What's Abe got to do with it? What has he got to do with any of the difficulties or problems we look at today? Or, as educators, why, when there are so many other subjects begging, demanding attention, should attention be given to this man who has faded so far into the, the general past. What kind of relevance does he has, have for us today? I'd like to focus on five things which, for me, make Lincoln relevant. And I want to sort of divide this. I want to talk about five things that are sort of abstract, and then I want to talk about just a couple of things that are personal. You know, why, not just why I think Lincoln is important, but why I am spending so much time myself uh, in the company of this man who is no longer with us and hasn't been for uh, more than 100 years. I think the first thing that makes Lincoln important is his role as an emancipator. The 19th century was the great century of emancipations, but it was a very uneven century of emancipations. American slavery was, in the 19th century, deeply entrenched. It was for all of its horrors, also a tremendously profitable system. 
70% of American exports in the 1850s were made up by cotton shipped from the American South and picked by slave labor. Two-thirds of the richest Americans lived in the South. If, like Willie Sutton, you wanted to know where the money was, it was in the South. And it was linked to cotton, which was produced by slave labor. Not only was slavery profitable, but it was restless. It wanted to expand. Not content with being legal in the 15 states where it was, it wished to expand into the Western territories. It agitated for the annexation of Cuba and other territories in Latin America into which to expand, and ultimately would have looked towards establishing the legality of slavery in those states which were otherwise legally free states. In the face of this, which would seem like overwhelming pressure to do nothing about slavery, I mean, as I say, it was aggressive and it was profitable. In the face of every incentive to do nothing, Lincoln does something, and that is to emancipate, to buck the tide that slavery represented in American life and the American economy. That was taking a big risk. So big that I can only suggest that it was a big, 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 big risk. In fact, we take so much for granted what happened in the Civil War with the end of slavery that it is difficult sometimes to put ourselves in a position to see that the Civil War needn't have ended slavery at all. That in fact we might still be living today with some attenuated form of enslaved labor. The fact that Lincoln and the Civil War put that beyond question is a measure of Lincoln's accomplishment as an emancipator. We should not delude ourselves, though, that it was an easy decision or a decision which he felt himself under some kind of pressure or some kind of force to perform. He could very easily have stood aside and done nothing, and it would not be at all difficult today to find some form of legalized slave labor still with us. After all, there are capitalist and semi-capitalist economies which still possess economies where a large segment of that economy is the product of compulsory labor. I think of mainland China. There is no inherent incompatibility between market economies and slavery. The one can absorb the other, and in fact, slavery might advertise itself as the best solution to the labor problem of market economies. And if we think that a race-based slavery could scarcely survive in a modern world in the climate of opinion, then I beg to point out that within the lifetimes of people sitting here, entire nations have based their legal codes on absolute segregation 
apartheid, and racial domination. In the case of South Africa, that racial code was only codified in 1948. Apartheid in South Africa was not some long-standing thing stretching from the Middle Ages and just hanging on by sheer historical inertia. It was, in fact, a comparatively recent creation, only to be dispelled in the 1990s by the freedom struggle under Nelson Mandela. So, take it all together, and there is no reason why slavery might not have persisted in some form, even to this day, had not Lincoln been the emancipator. Second thing, for which I think Lincoln is important, is the example he offers of how an open society functions. Lincoln was born, as I think nearly everybody knows, in a log cabin in Kentucky. Thank you, Nevada. <laughs> you grew up in, all right, that explains it. Who's from Kentucky here? And I said it. <laughs> I said it some because I didn't want to be rude. Okay. Well, let's put, it, let's put it this way. He was born in a log cabin in Kentucky, but then Kentucky became rich and powerful, and we haven't asked what they live in in Nevada, right? Right, yeah, okay. All right, now we've even that score. He's born in a log cabin. He's born in poverty. His mother dies when he's nine years old. His sister dies when he's 18. His father is an ignorant farmer, a backwoodsman, who was happy to be ignorant, happy to be a farmer, and happy to be a backwoodsman. He doesn't get along with his son. The two cordially dislike each other. He comes from nothing. I have seen, Lincoln said on one occasion, I have seen a great deal of the backside of the world. But when he was a young man, looking for work, trying to find odd jobs in the neighborhood, on one occasion he happened to have a small boat that he used to ferry travelers out to the main ship channel in the Ohio River. The Ohio River steamboats, of course, would not come in to pick people up. You had to go out and be picked up by them, and he offered a little ferry service. Two men one day jumped into his boat, told him to paddle out intercept the steamer, and when he did, as they boarded the steamer, they flicked him two silver dollars. He picked up those silver dollars, and it was a revelation to him. Here was real hard money that was his, which he could do with, any way he liked, and used to improve himself any way he liked. And from that point on, Lincoln's career is one long story of self-improvement, of constant looking for advantage, constantly trying to transform himself, constantly struggling to move ahead in the race of life. For Lincoln, the great thing about American society is how American society is open to people doing that that it allows and encourages people who start out at zero to go to a hundred by dint of their own talents and efforts. Again, we may be talking about something which seems perfectly obvious and natural. Not in the 19th century. Bear in mind that in the 19th century, especially in Europe, 
societies there were still hide-bound and cast-bound. You were what your parents had been before you and what their parents were before, the, before that. If you were born to the manor, well, that was simply the way it was. And if you were born to be a butcher, that was the way it was too. And you did not seek to disturb that, nor did you have much in the way of opportunity to do that. And that was the way most of the world lived. People liked that because it offered stability. It offered predictability. For Lincoln, what that offered was stagnation. What Lincoln wanted was mobility and dynamism. And that was what he found in American life. And which beca and he became one of the principal poster boys for American mobility. For here is someone who starts, as he once said, a poor, penniless, friendless boy on a flatboat, and within 30 years he has become a successful and prosperous lawyer, not to say, in 1860, president-elect of the United States. He once remarked, I came to this great office by accident. I am like a piece of wood bobbing in the channel. I had no idea I was going to come this far. But in the American environment, that is exactly what is the norm. In the norm of almost every other society in the 19th century, it was fixture in place that was the norm. But in American society, something terribly different had happened. Something marvelously different had happened, and Lincoln was an example of that. And for all Americans, he then is a testimony to this continued gem of an open and mobile society in which people are free to make of themselves what they wish, no matter how humbly born. They are also free, of course, no matter how well born, to make fools of themselves. But that is in the nature of an open society. We have no aristocracy. We have no dukes, princes, counts, barons, and whatnot. We instead have a situation in, every, in which everyone is offered that equal chance, as he put it, in the race of life to make of themselves what they will. A third way in which I think Lincoln is important and still continues to speak to us is that he saved the Union. Now, it is possible to say Oh, well, sure, yes, of course he saved the Union. Uh, that was going to happen anyway, wasn't it? The North was so much more powerful in the Civil War. That was inevitable. So why is that a great accomplishment? Again, bear in mind the fact that not only are the other societies of the world socially hidebound, but they are politically aristocratic. In fact, in the middle of the 19th century, it was not democracy which was on the march, democracy was on the defensive. It is as though there had been one window of opportunity at the end of the 18th century for the creation of democracies. And they were created in North America, in Latin America, in France, and in almost every case, they fizzled or imploded. With the exception of North America, the democracies and republics that were founded and carved out of the destruction of the Spanish Empire and the New World sank as they did even under the leadership of Simon Bolivar, the George Washington of Latin America. 
into quasi-dictatorships, presidents for life, civil wars, secession. And of course in France what began as the creation of a republic out of an American-style revolution became a reign of terror that quickly became an absolute dictatorship under Napoleon Bonaparte, the first model of the modern dictatorships which have, over the 20th century, clothed the history of the West in blood. To look at the United States in 1860 was to see the one major significant example of a democracy, a functioning democracy, working in the world. It was the last place where the candle of freedom and popular government was still burning. For the United States then in 1861 to convulse itself in secession, withdrawal, civil war, was to jeopardize what Lincoln called the last best hope of mankind. In that respect then, by saving the Union, he did more than save the immediate political uh, situation, the immediate political structure of the United States of America. He was conscious of the fact that in saving the Union, he was saving the very idea that people could govern themselves, that people were not born with saddles for aristocrats to ride them. This, of course, is what he means at Gettysburg when he speaks of this nation conceived in liberty, dedicated to a proposition that all men are created equal, and that this civil war was a test whether that nation or any, any nation so conceived and so dedicated could long endure. Lincoln asked the question rhetorically in 1861, is there something in the nature of democracy? Is there some, some, some bizarre centrifugal force that always means that we will whip ourselves into a frenzy that will spin the pieces of a democracy out into destructive and individual directions? The Civil War was a test of whether democracies were inherently flawed. By saving the Union, he passed and America passed the test, and so made it possible to say to all other nations in the earth, yes, this works. It really works. Under the heading of saving the Union, it has to be said that he does two things which are, I think, particularly relevant to discussions today. One is he deploys, more than that, he almost invents the doctrine of presidential war powers. More of that later on. And he also has to define the role of the courts, of the judicial branch, in the American system. The American system speaks of itself as having three branches, legislative, executive, and judicial. It also boasts of how, by a means, by a system of checks and balances, those branches operate to assist, but also to correct each other. But in the course of the Civil War, one of the great problems Lincoln had to address was what are the roles to be played by the courts in the conduct of this war. Those, of course, are issues that I think we have all read about recently in a much, much more contemporary context. 
And it has to be said that both the issues and the debate seem scarcely to have shifted at all since the days of Abraham Lincoln. The fourth reason, the fourth reason why I think we come back to Lincoln is because of religion. Abe Lincoln himself was a man, let us say, of very modest profile when it came to religion. He did not belong to a church. He did not profess any particular religious creed. In fact, as a young man, if he was known for anything to his intimates and friends, he was known as an infidel, as an unbeliever. That softened, as it frequently does in, oh, let's say young people who are filled to the gills with new ideas. Experience has a way of doing that to you, knocking you on the head, softening you, mellowing you, and it did to Lincoln. And yet, by the time that he becomes president, he still is no member of a church, still has no profession of a religious creed. But over the course of the Civil War, that itself changes. Lincoln had to puzzle out the meaning of the Civil War. And in so doing, the weapons he reached for, the interpretive tools he reached for, were religious. So that by the end of his administration, by the time he issues, reads his second inaugural address on the 4th of March, 1865, which both Frederick Douglass and Lucas Morrell alike have called a sacred effort, <laughs> um, what he offers to the country as his interpretation of the war begins to read almost like a sermon about divine judgment on both North and South in which the appropriate response of the nation is couched in terms of theological virtues, humility, charity, absence of malice. What Lincoln suggests is a pattern that is important for the American political scheme because in the American way of doing things, where we do not officially establish any form of religion, but instead enshrine freedom of religious practice, there is a temptation to one of two extremes. One extreme is to insist that in the public square, no allusion to religion should be permitted at all, lest that begin to look like an endorsement or an establishment. The other extreme is to react against that to insist that whatever the Constitution says, it ought to give free reign to all kinds of official endorsements of religion. Neither, it seems to me, of those extremes takes us in a healthy direction. But do we have an example of anyone who was able to walk middle path? I think we do in Abraham Lincoln, who was capable both of bringing religious ideas and religious discourse to the table of politics without either politicizing religion or religionizing politics, without violating that separation of church and state described by Thomas Jefferson in his letter of 1804. Fifthly and lastly in this regard, why I think Lincoln is still relevant brings me to some personal considerations. I admire the man personally. In addition to all these great supra-historical reasons, 
Lincoln offers us the example of a man characterized by persistence and flexibility, a man capable of absorbing a tremendous amount of punishment and yet moving on, never losing sight of the long-term goals. That kind of persistence that carried him through, no matter whether people were condemning him one way or condemning him the other. He also shows the virtue of humility, of realizing that the world does not begin and end with himself. <coughs> that other forces have brought him to where he is, and those same forces will take him to, to directions he does not anticipate. There is also an element in this man of farsightedness. His capability of seeing beyond the hurly-burly of immediate problems and immediate demands, of seeing beyond the screaming tyranny of the urgent towards what the long-term goals must be and even toward where the long-term situation is most likely to materialize. He had a remarkable gift for being able to lay out where the direction of events was most likely tending. And more often than not, he was right. And he could tailor his policies to that. One last thing under personal, under personal qualities that one must admire, that I certainly admire in Lincoln, is his eloquence. To read the early Lincoln, as I'm sure you've done from some of the excerpts in Language of Liberty, to read some of his early writings is to read your standard 19th century, three-decker, overblown, high eloquence that often seems like it is a very large, overstuffed balloon about to burst. I think you should pay attention, though, over time to how that changes, how his prose, how his writings begin to focus, begin to slim down, begin to do the Weight Watcher thing how they begin to get precise, hard, gem-like, scratching indelibly like a diamond, until this man could collapse so much thought into just a few sentences that you would have to sit and read them over and over and over and over again in order to be able to milk every possible idea of meaning from them. That's an extraordinary accomplishment just as a writer. And certainly of American presidents, Lincoln is our greatest and most gifted writer. Needless to say, he wrote all his state papers. There was no team of speechwriters. In fact, he works his way through the Civil War, our greatest cataclysm politically, with a White House staff of exactly four people. That's not bad for getting all that work done. It did help, of course, that the man himself was a workaholic, but that's not one of the list of things I wanted to tell you that I admired. <laughs> he is eloquent. And it was said even in his days as a prominent lawyer in Illinois that no one was better at stating a case than Abraham Lincoln. In a courtroom, all that Lincoln had to do was to get up and give the original summary of the case, and the judge was very likely to say, very well, Brother Lincoln, thank you. Now we will hear from the other side. Because in stating the case, he had halfway won it. His law partner, William Herndon, said that Lincoln had a mania for precision of expression. 
knotting himself up in silence for an hour, trying to find just the right word, just the right phrase. His first law partner, John Todd Stewart, said that he had a mathematical turn of mind. Mathematical, not because he loved arithmetic, but because he was so much in pursuit of that precise phrase and word that would convey exactly what he wanted in such a way that it would be clear to everyone. That, of course, stands him in sterling good resource as President of the United States, when time and time and time again he must explain, he must justify, he must offer to an entire country convulsed in a bloody and sometimes, it seemed, almost pointless and unwinnable civil war, why they should push on. For all those reasons, then, I think that Lincoln is certainly worth our attention. There have been ups and downs in Lincoln's reputation. Today, for instance, he is often attacked as a racist, a demagogue, a dictator, an inconsistent Democrat. Those things are easy to say in an era of nonstop CNN headline news, analysis, criticism, skepticism. That comes easy to us. What I think is important is to step back and to see the full height of the man, not just his six feet four inches physically, but the full height of what he was in his time and what he accomplished not only for his time, but for our time as well. That's a brief way of introduction, why I do Lincoln. with us uh, this week. Uh, I'll give mine uh, a much more personal take on, on uh, why I study Lincoln, beginning with my uh, senior year in college. Um, I was thinking of a thesis that was going to take a year, and uh, for some reason I wanted to study Thoreau and civil disobedience, and my professor, Charles Kessler, I don't know if you've run into him yet, he said, oh, don't do that. Uh, he says, why don't you look at, yeah, <laughs> I was actually going to compare Thoreau on civil disobedience and Lincoln on civil disobedience. We'll see, uh, I think even in tomorrow's first session, uh, Lincoln's perpetuation address, his uh, address to the Springfield Lyceum in 1838, he talks about civil disobedience for a couple of paragraphs there, uh, in contrast to his main theme, which is law-abidingness, uh, civil obedience. Well, when I thought of this, my two, am I not uh, speaking loud enough? Sorry. Um, when I was thinking of an honors thesis as a senior in college, I wanted to compare uh, views of civil disobedience between Thoreau on the one hand and Lincoln on the other, and my reader didn't care for that topic. But what he did say was, he says, no one's written anything decent on Lincoln's second inaugural address. Why don't you take a crack at that? Uh, I could find no books on the subject, and there was a reason for that, because there hadn't been one published on it. Uh, yeah, incredible. Um, uh, and well, anyway, uh, and so I decided to spend a whole year studying four paragraphs and produce 70 pages on four paragraphs. There's a reason why I have to write 70 pages on Lincoln's four paragraphs, and that's what Alan just told you this precision of expression uh, that he had. Um, he, Alan didn't mention uh, what he well knows is that Lincoln, of all the books he decided to read as a congressman, 
and he's, he, he read a lot, uh, but he wrote, uh, he read uh, the first six books of Euclid's Elements. Lincoln, as you know, probably uh, had, had the sum total of about a year, 12 months worth of formal education, what they called blab schools at the time, uh, where the, the teacher would say something and the kids would recite it. Uh, didn't go to, 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 to college, it was an autodidact, he was self-taught, and as a congressman he thought, you know what I ought to read? A geometry book. <laughs> and I think that's what leads us uh, in part to the Gettysburg Address. Uh, that, that ability to uh, analyze things with, uh, with such precision. Well, anyway, so I spent a year uh, on this thesis, uh, and it was a thesis that eventually led me to uh, continue studying Lincoln as a graduate uh, student, and that was the culminating chapter of my book, Lincoln's Sacred Effort, Defining Religion's Role in American Self-Government. Uh, it was my dissertation was to look at Lincoln's uh, use of religion, his view of religion, uh, not, not so much personally, although I, I make some comments about that, uh, but more importantly, what he thought the public role for religion should be. And, of course, he didn't write a treatise on this subject or give a speech about it, per se, uh, but he, he did have to deal with it uh, when he ran for Congress, uh, and, and you've got that in your readings. Uh, but what I did was look at speeches where he touched on the subject of religion, uh, what it should do, what it shouldn't do, as well as what government should do vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the public expression of religion. Uh, and so uh, that, that's what drew me to, to Lincoln originally. And, and ultimately, um, why I continue to study Lincoln is because he teaches me about America. Now, that sounds kind of cliched or trite, uh, but just to compare here, uh, Alan is a historian. And I am what they call a political scientist. Uh, I study politics, and in particular, American politics, but I study it from a philosophical perspective. I'm a, a theorist, as it were. And what I like, or one of the things I liked about Lincoln, is that he was a student of the founding. Uh, as Chris Flannery, our other uh, instructor uh, last week said, uh, and I agree with this, that Lincoln was the most profound student of the American founding. Uh, and so to learn about America, one can do very well by reading Lincoln, uh, not just to learn about the Civil War, of course, uh, but to learn about uh, what the founders had created. And because I was a student of the founding, you had to study Lincoln. Uh, Lincoln uh, helped you uh, to do that. Um, and what we also noticed with Lincoln, of course, is that he couldn't practice politics without bringing principles to bear. Uh, one of the hardest things for my students uh, to pick up, especially at the beginning of a seminar on Lincoln, is, uh, is, is to try to reconcile Lincoln's ideas, his principles, with practice. They, they, they have a hard time with, with the political Lincoln, the ambitious Lincoln, the wire-pulling uh, Lincoln, the Lincoln who's constantly, if you read his collected works, um, he's constantly writing letters to other people to find out what's going on politically, to, to shape what's going on politically. Uh, and, and one of my aims in my class is to try to get students to see that it's one thing to be able to uh, say things the way Garrison says them. We'll, we'll be looking at that uh, this week. It's one thing to not have to run for office but just spout out uh, uh, the, the knowledge that, that you believe God has given you uh, to share with the rest of the world. It's another thing to bring those truths to bear in a way that it will impact uh, millions. Uh, Lincoln, because he was ambitious, Lincoln, because he knew how politics worked, uh, but because of the character of Lincoln, uh, which we, we learned in part uh, through Allen's presentation, uh, the combination of character 
and intellect that we see in Lincoln applied politically uh, is, is one thing that I think can kind of redeem our understanding of politics, our, our hopes for politics, that politics can actually be a noble thing. Um, we have to remind ourselves that Lincoln was a lawyer. Right? Uh, usually when you say lawyer, and I know we have uh, at least one in the room, uh, usually when you say lawyer, lawyer, you either think immediately of a lawyer joke <laughs> or you get some sort of uh, mixed feelings about it. Uh, with Lincoln, that's not the first thing we think about when we think about Lincoln, and I think that says something about the man. Uh, but I'm thankful that Lincoln was a lawyer. I'm thankful that Lincoln was, had a political bent to him, that in fact he found out early on politics was something he was good at. And isn't it great that we have someone like Lincoln who was good at something that a whole host of people are very good at, but lack the character, lack uh, the noble ideals uh, that a Lincoln has. Uh, and so that's why I find him uh, uh, very useful. Um, and I'll, I'll close. I'm going to make my remarks uh, fairly brief here since it's 8 o'clock already. Um, I'm going to connect uh, my study of Lincoln and study of the American founding to a new research area of mine. I still study Lincoln and I still uh, write about Lincoln um, and, and talk about Lincoln. Uh, but I'm also researching a novelist, uh, an American novelist named Ralph Ellison. Uh, you probably know him uh, best uh, by the novel, his first novel, amazingly enough, that he published in 1952, won the National Book Award, Invisible Man. Not the Invisible Man, that's the other guy, H.G. <laughs> Wells. Uh, and, and by the way, I mean, when, when Ellison gave them this, the, the title of this book, they, they said, oh, no, look, people are going to get confused, where there already isn't a, you know, the Invisible Man. And Ellison insisted, it's Invisible Man, no article, just Invisible Man, and he would not change, he refused, absolutely refused to change the title. Uh, anyway, I don't know how, I don't know what got me back to looking at Ellison. I hadn't read that novel since I was a sophomore in high school. Uh, but several years back, uh, probably in 98, 99, I started studying Ellison again and found somebody else who could teach me something about America. Uh, someone else who, had, who was influenced by Lincoln. If you read his novel, uh, Juneteenth, which was published posthumously, uh, there's this excellent uh, excerpt. In fact, we have two excerpts for you that you'll be reading during our DC stage. Uh, an excerpt where he recounts a Juneteenth sermon, and I'm not going to explain what that is until we get there, but he, in, in chapter, I forget what chapter it is, seven or nine of, of uh, Juneteenth, uh, you see him give a rendition of the black American experience in America, uh, a history of black America in this one sermon. And he does it in a very deft way, a way that I had not seen before. And uh, also, uh, uh, one that we have to do because we're going to be touring the monuments when we get to D.C. Uh, there's a scene where, where uh, Ellison has the, one of the protagonists of the novel travel with his congregation to the Lincoln Memorial. Right? They try to meet with a senator. They get kicked out of the senator's office. And what place is open to them in D.C.? Where don't they get kicked out of? the Lincoln Memorial, right? No guards keeping them out of there. No secretaries trying to slough them off. Uh, and he has a reverie that is uh, the most lyrical uh, uh, piece of, of work that I have seen in fiction on uh, the meaning of Lincoln uh, in America that I've ever read. Uh, and so we'll be looking at that uh, as well later this week. Uh, but Ellison, Ellison, like Lincoln, teaches me about uh, America, teaches me about the nation of my birth, and the nation that I believe really is, uh, with Lincoln, uh, the last uh, best hope of mankind. 
So that's why I study Lincoln. I offer a seminar on Lincoln every fall, uh, and we'll be doing so uh, uh, this fall. And uh, why I have you, why I even agreed to do uh, to direct this uh, academy. Um, when we thought of the three things that we wanted to look at, uh, emblematic of the 17th, 18th, or excuse me, 18th, 19th, and 20th century. We thought of the founding. We thought, obviously, the threat to the founding, the Civil War, and what I believe to be the culmination of the founding uh, in the modern civil rights movement. Uh, we obviously were going to spend a lot of time on Lincoln. Uh, so that's my brief spiel. Uh, do you want to chime in with something there? Sure. Go ahead. What you have had as, as reading assignments, probably had you prepared to hear something very different from myself and from Lucas, um, yeah, you, you, you came expecting uh, Beethoven and instead you got Mozart or something like that. And what I think is important is that the views you have read from Lerone Bennett, Thomas DiLorenzo, Michael Lind, from you might, I mean, some from the right, some from the left, some from an entirely personal take. Uh, these, are, these are views which are unabashedly antagonistic to Lincoln. Uh, they really don't like him. Not only do they not like him, but they find him responsible for many of the problems that we deal with today in American society. Instead of lauding Lincoln as the preserver or the emancipator, he is instead denigrated as a monster of hypocrisy. And the arguments that are made by Lind and by DiLorenzo and by Lerone Bennett uh, can be, I think, taken in one of two ways. One is that we can accept them as gospel truth, just as they are, and we'll be inclined to do that if, I think, as I think, we get a certain thrill out of throwing mud on the, the people on pedestals. The other extreme that we can go to is to ignore them. Uh, Lerone Bennett, for example, is read by many people who have worked their way through his book, and it is something of a chore, I have to admit. <laughs> Bennett is not, I mean, he's, he's very repetitive. Each chapter pretty much sounds like the other chapter. Some of it is so extravagant in its denigration of Lincoln that after a while it becomes very easy to say, why am I reading this kooky guy? That is a mistake. Um, whatever else Lerone Bennett is, let me at least tell you this. Lerone Bennett was born in Mississippi. He grew up under segregation. He went through the Civil Rights Movement. He became the man managing editor of Ebony Magazine in Chicago. Lerone Bennett is a man of the most sterling integrity. I know of incidents in which whole rooms of people were tempted to do things that were not particularly ethical, and they were stopped from doing it by the example of Lerone Bennett. Here is one of the great men in the black community. For him to speak in the terms he does of Abraham Lincoln deserves to be heard 
simply on the strength of who Lerone Bennett is. I think it also deserves to be heard because what Bennett represents is a massive disenchantment with Abraham Lincoln by American black people. There was a time, and not terribly long ago, when every African-American home in this country seemed to have a portrait of Abraham Lincoln in it. If you've ever seen the famous photographs that were shot during the signing ceremony for Jackie Robinson, with Jackie Robinson and Branch Rickey, and Jackie Robinson is about to sign a contract with the Brooklyn Dodgers that would break the color line in America in 1947. On the wall behind Robinson and Branch Rickey, notice whose photograph is there? Abraham Lincoln. All that in the course of almost one generation has been swept away. It is the greatest sea change in American historical consciousness that we know of, and Lerone Bennett articulates that. Anyone who ignores Bennett does so at their peril, because he is speaking for that great sea change. Now what Lucas and I would really like to invite you to do is to try to bridge the gap between what you have read and what you have heard, using us as the pincushions in which to stick the pins of argument to say, if what so-and-so says is this, why do you say otherwise? And without, in the slightest bit, as I've been saying about Lerone Bennett, without suggesting that Bennett, DiLorenzo, or Lind are somehow three sheets to the wind. To the contrary, each of them has a serious argument to be made which needs to be taken seriously. And by saying this, I don't want anyone to conclude that these are merely cheap targets that we put up so that we can easily knock them down and have a good laugh in the process. To the contrary, these are serious arguments that are made by these critics and which go to the heart of exactly the political the integrity of the political order that both Lucas and I have been describing. So I think at this point we'd like to throw the floor open and allow you to throw some of those well, why so questions at us. Uh, oh, 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 that was quick. Here I thought I was going to have to warm everybody up and get them going. Oh no! Uh, all right, well, what should we do? Should we take a number? Uh, everyone here, it's going to be like the deli counter? Uh, go ahead. I'm going to let you pick people. Go ahead. Okay. Professor Gelsow, in reading proclamation and in reading the material, all the other material, the, there were two things that absolutely, to me, seemed to just crystallize immediately. The first thing was, was that of national expansion of slavery as Lincoln was trying to articulate that the South, and not, I wouldn't even say the South, the slave interest really did have it on their mind to expand slavery to include the whole nation, that this was a program, and yet from my readings and from everything I've ever understood, it strikes me that he largely went ununderstood. People didn't, I don't read where people were understanding what he was trying to warn them, that this isn't just some Weird something I fabricated, you know, a house divided against itself. They're really going to do this if one or the other is going to happen, and this is just as real and just as likely, maybe more likely, than the other. 
that was the one fabric that I that I saw, but I'd like for you to address on that, if if you would, is why am I getting that perception? That is, am I right in perceiving that as as the way it was? That is, that he really wasn't being understood. That people really didn't see what he was trying to say, or or is am I misreading it? That's the first thread, and the second thread, if I may, just go ahead and throw it out, and then. But please deal with the first one first. <laughs> was was the, the growth and the develop, and this is to me was just so crystal clear in your book. The growth and the development of Lincoln as a man who started out seeing black people as you know human beings who deserve to be treated fairly, but beyond that, you know, yeah, to, to this person who genuinely at towards the end really did see them as equal human beings sharing equally in humanity. And it seems to me that there's this very clear growth in him. And that seems to be largely not clear to a lot of people. But it seems so clear in your writing. So either your writing is is loaded or... or would you like a job as my publicist? <laughs> <laughs> but, but if you would address that first issue right now, please. Did... Did people see in 1858, 59, 60, 61, did they see the same threat from slavery that Lincoln did? In large measure, they did. There was, in fact, a great deal of anxiety in the North about what was called the slave power, a conspiracy of the slave interests. And it's not surprising that people would come to that conclusion because for 60 years, from the election of Thomas Jefferson onwards, the national executive had been pretty well dominated by the Democratic Party, and the Democratic Party of those days was itself dominated by Southern slaveholders and slaveholder interests. Um, those interests, both legislatively and in terms of foreign policy, always managed to skew the application uh, of American policies in favor of slavery. And perhaps the, the greatest skew of all was the Mexican War. Uh, we needed the Mexican War. Uh, really like, like we needed two noses. But on the other hand, the Mexican War reaped for the United States huge amounts of territory that were very obviously going to fall into that geographical band which would be friendly to slavery. Uh, there's really not too much question but that the Mexican War is largely a war, at least indirectly, that is, that is waged for the benefit of slave expansion. And in 1858 and 59, people saw very clearly the handwriting was on the wall, first from the Dred Scott decision in 1857, and then from the case which people anticipated would be Dred Scott II, uh, the case of Lemon versus New York, which would have, if it had come up to the Supreme Court, have struck down the free state statutes against slavery. It didn't get that all that way because the Civil War intervened. But I was last week in, in doing work in Illinois. I'm reading Illinois newspapers, and the Illinois newspapers are writing op-eds about the Lemon case and where Lemon is likely to take us politically. So when Lincoln refers to uh, why it is likely the country will become all one thing or all the other, he's talking current events. People do understand that. Now, it looks odd to us because it didn't happen. And there is a certain historical fallacy, uh, one, one of many fallacies history people always have to be on guard against. But one of these historical fallacies is the assumption that because it didn't happen, it couldn't have happened. All right? This is a little like saying that because Babe Ruth 
did not hit 60 home runs in his first season as an outfielder, he wasn't or couldn't have hit 60 home runs. Well, of course, he did in 1927. But um, just because it didn't happen doesn't mean it couldn't have. On the, uh, the problem is that because it doesn't happen, we tend to assume that it couldn't have. No, it could have. And so could everything that Lincoln had in view there. So I think when we come to this, we, from our perspective, have to read this with the eyes of people then, with their expectations and their understanding of what the lay of the land was. And it looks substantially more threatening than, uh, than it may uh, now. Now, your second thing, his growth is not clear. Well, that's true because growth is not, first of all, a terribly clear thing, as anyone who has ever grown can tell you. Um, the other, but the other thing that's connected with that is that Lincoln is a very private man. Lincoln does not keep a diary. He does not open up himself to people. Uh, he was what Carl Sandburg once called the strange friend and the friendly stranger. His law partner, Herndon, said that Lincoln always kept half of himself back from people, did not reveal himself, did not talk about it, did not like to give himself away. And even half of that he never revealed even to his closest friends. There was always this chunk of Lincoln's personality that he never opened up to people and repelled any attempts to get at. That means that for us, it's much harder to see that growth because the most important witness to that growth, himself, didn't tell us about it, didn't chart it for us. So yes, the growth is there. Now the problem is he just does not come out and trumpet it because he's really not into autobiography. Uh, in fact, the, the, when, when he's running for office, especially when he's running for president in 1860, his promoters really have to almost pull his teeth to get him to write an autobiographical statement. He repels one of them by saying, oh, you ought to know that my life can be summed up in one line out of Gray's Elegy, the short and simple annals of the poor. The reason that there's not so much of me to write about is because there really isn't much of me. <laughs> you're, thinking, you're thinking, yeah, right. So were you trying to show that growth in this book, or, or is it just the, the simple facts fall into place and leave themselves there. Well, I hope it's both. <laughs> but let, let me say this one thing about growth. I think that there's a, a sense in which one can take the growth image almost a little too far. There are many people who write about Lincoln who say, well, yes, he grew. You know, he started out thinking an entirely different way and in a very short period of time over the course of the presidency, let's say, changes completely. What I wanted, the point I wanted to make in, Eman in the Emancipation Proclamation book was that Lincoln's change is not about fundamental principles. Lincoln was committed to emancipation from day one. He didn't suddenly wake up in the middle of the Civil War and say, boy, wouldn't it be a real nifty thing? I could really throw a fastball past them if I emancipate the slaves. Um, he's committed to emancipation. The question is, how do you get there? How do you get there? And to understand that, again, it's like one of these situations of because it didn't happen one way, it couldn't have. He's always thinking, what's the context here? Where is the legal boundary? Sometimes when you're doing history, it's like explaining things to, it's like explaining football to a Martian, all right? If a Martian walked out of a spaceship and watched a football game from a skybox, they would, he would see lots of people running around on the ground, and then some people, one person with a ball would run in one direction, and then everything would stop, and the ball would be surrendered. And the Martian would say, why, why, why did they stop play? Oh, well, he's out of bounds. Bounds? What bounds? Martian didn't see any brick wall. The bounds 
are purely something that we construct. Well, of course, based on little chalk marks in lime on the ground, but still. There's nothing physical that a football player runs into when they run out of bounds. But we see that, don't we? So when they, when they cross over that line, it's, ah, he's out of bounds. We only see that because we know to see it. Historically speaking, we really have to do something of the same thing. We have to know where the boundaries were, the expectations, the possibilities, which in a lot of ways, because we are that Martian and those things are invisible to us, that is sometimes the hardest part of the job to reconstruct. Carol? We talked about this in terms of the, the earlier founding fathers, but do you think an issue for Lincoln was, uh, in terms of emancipation, was what was going to happen to all the emancipated enslaved people afterwards? Absolutely. I mean, in 1856, uh, he speaks about this, and he says, well, if we, if we did free all the slaves, what would happen next? says, well, perhaps we should colonize the freed slaves to Liberia. Well, why is that? Well, some people say it's because he didn't like freed slaves. Well, it's also because he's dealing realistically with the fact that America in the 19th century is, to put it pretty bluntly, a white supremacist society. I mean, these are people who would embarrass the Ku Klux Klan. That's, that's what the main drift of American racial thought in the 19th century is like. And one gets this from the newspapers and the letters just routinely and frequently. Uh, Lincoln was hoping to avoid collision. He was hoping to avoid friction. So he says, all right, let, let, let's consider colonization. Then he says, but that's not really practical, is it? Then he finally ends up by saying, I really don't know what to do. But he, what he doesn't want people to conclude be, that because you don't know what you're going to do, that therefore you should just acquiesce in slavery. Uh, what's remarkable is that not being entirely sure what the future was going to look like, he nevertheless persists in opposing slavery. He didn't have, in other words, he didn't have all the answers, but he did know what was right. So he really didn't have a plan for dealing for dealing post-emancipation. That no, that he begins to put together piece by piece by piece in response to the situation. Over here, good. <laughs> Why, why was Frederick Douglass able to change his opinion of Lincoln and Mr. Bennett cannot? <laughs> That's a great question. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it, what's, what's curious is that Bennett, Bennett, uh, no, go ahead if you want to clap for his question. <laughs> Bennett's book, which I think came out in 2000, is close to 600 pages. But it was really a follow-through of an article that he wrote for Ebony Magazine in the 60s, I believe. That was about 68. Mm -hmm. It was about six pages long. So we turned six pages a generation ago, <laughs> 30 years ago, into 600 pages. So he became, Bennett, at least in Bennett's case, he became all the more convinced of this, I would consider, peculiar thesis about Lincoln being uh, a white supremacist in favor of racial genocide and a lot of other nasty stuff. Uh, so at least in Bennett's case, he became more convinced as he looked at uh, the evidence. Now, I have, I have st strong problems, I mean, very strong uh, reasons why I don't think the conclusions that he draws are fair to the evidence that he's looking at. Uh, but I think we may even have that in your readings later, but it's, it's a book review that I read, uh, wrote, uh, and I'll leave it for that. Uh, but at least in Bennett's case, his own life bears out that he, the more he looked at Lincoln, the less convinced he was 
legitimately the great emancipator. With Douglas, uh, Douglas is, is, is boy, uh, they are almost identical in terms of their background, in terms of being self-made men. Now, Douglas, of course, had the added obstacle, but obstacle in capital letters, that he was born into slavery. Lincoln's slavery was of a different sort. You'd have to put his in scare quotes, but essentially both, neither of them had any formal education, uh, to really to speak of, had to teach themselves. Frederick Douglass tricking the kids in the neighborhood to teach him uh, uh, how to read and, and to move on from that. Uh, comes under William uh, Lloyd Garrison's tutelage uh, when he goes north. Uh, becomes a uh, rapidly uh, anti-Constitution, anti-America. Uh, up until about 1849, Douglas uh, buys the line that the, the Constitution is pro-slavery, not pro-liberty. Then starts talking to a few other abolitionists, like Lysander Spooner and William Goodell and others. And by 1850, decides that the Constitution really is a pro-liberty document and, in fact, is the key to getting rid of slavery in the South. Rather than with Garrison, you'll see, letting our erring brethren go. Um, he is Lincoln's kind of loyal opposition uh, during the Civil War, before, during, after emancipation. Uh, and what's curious is we don't have what that relationship would have looked like later in 1865 because of uh, Lincoln's assassination. What, how that relationship would have blossomed more. They only met two times formally and a third time informally uh, at, at, after the second inauguration. Uh, uh, but it, it, in his two audiences, beginning with the first one in uh, the summer of 63, uh, Douglas is convinced more about Lincoln's character by talking with Lincoln rather than by just reading his public statements. Uh, the statements of Lincoln uh, <coughs> grate harshly upon him uh, because of his own experience as, as being a former slave. Uh, but his greatest reflection on this is his 1876 speech uh, address uh, uh, oration on uh, Abraham Lincoln when they're dedicating that uh, Freedmen's Memorial in Washington, D.C., where he essentially tells the story uh, of what he thinks about Lincoln, Lincoln's politics, what he recognizes about what Lincoln had to do, given the fact that we live in a nation that's dominated by the anti-black sentiment. Uh, and that's north of the Mason-Dixon line, uh, not just south. Uh, but what, 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 what you see in that speech is Douglas coming to terms with Lincoln the man and Lincoln the public man, Lincoln the, the politician, Lincoln the one that has to move people from point A to point B, and he can't do it simply by telling them, I want you to be at point B. He has to build a bridge from the, where they're at to where he thinks they ought to be, given Lincoln's understanding of America. Um, and these things happen individually. Um, I don't know what else uh, a lot, to say about that. A lot of it, I think, is a matter of, of one's position. Lincoln dealt with a delegation of clergymen who came to him on one occasion advocating a more rapid move towards emancipation, telling Lincoln, really, what he needed to do. Lincoln countered by saying, if you saw Blondine, now Blondine was a high-wire act, like the flying Melendez, and Blondine specialized in sensational events like stretching a wire across Niagara Falls and crossing the fault on the wire. Lincoln said, now if you saw Blondine crossing Niagara Falls, what would you do? Would you start shouting to Blondine, little to the left Blondine, 
little to the right, Blondine. You know, do this, Blondine. Watch out, Blondine. You know, if everyone was shouting like that, that would be the fastest way for Blondine to end up in the drink. No, Lincoln said. What you'd be doing is you'd be as still as death down on your knees praying for Blondine. <laughs> and, of course, Lincoln was talking about himself. And he was describing his progress towards emancipation in very slow terms. And he's saying, no, consider what I'm dealing with. Consider what I'm, I am like Blondine, trying on that tightrope to get across Niagara Falls. That we can sympathize with, just on those terms, right? All right, now see it from another point of view. Frederick Douglass is a slave. He's not just a slave in his youth, and then escapes and stops being a slave. Uh-uh. You didn't escape legally from slavery. You couldn't escape legally from slavery. Despite the fact that Frederick Douglass was in the North, lived in the North, lived in Rochester, New York, published his newspaper from Rochester, New York, Frederick Douglass, until the Emancipation Proclamation, was legally, in the eyes of the law, still a slave and could be captured and rendered, extradited back to Maryland at any time. Why do you think he lived in Rochester, New York? Because it was right across from Canada. Exactly. Exactly. If there was any threat of slave catchers operating in this neighborhood, he could beat it across into Canada, where they couldn't touch him. He was a slave, still. So he has to be a man who is saying, how long, O oh Lord, how long do we wait? And if you're looking at this from the viewpoint of the slaves, then any delay is inexplicable. How much time do you need to do the right thing? So it is a, very much a matter of perspective. And it's only when Douglas actually meets Lincoln that there begins to be an understanding and a, and a meeting of the minds. And in fact, when Douglas, when Douglas delivers a eulogy in December of 1865 on Abraham Lincoln, he describes Lincoln as emphatically the colored man's president. Oddly, it's, 1876, 11 years later, he then speaks of Lincoln as emphatically the white man's president. Much more critical viewpoint. Well, what has happened in between? Reconstruction. So a it's a matter of, frequently it's a matter of perspective. What had Douglas seen? Now transfer that to Lerone Bennett. What has Lerone Bennett seen? Well, he's seen Mississippi in segregation. He has seen the Civil Rights Movement. He has seen well-intentioned people counseling hesitation and half-steps. It's like Martin Luther King in the letter from the Birmingham jail, where he is responding to all ma manner of sympathetic white people who are saying to him, well, you know, you gotta, you gotta ease up a bit here, you gotta go cautiously, you know, we shouldn't be too demanding. And King is saying, you, you want me not to be too demanding? We've been waiting for 300 years, and you want me not to be demanding? Frequently, this is a matter of position. What matters, ultimately, in changing any of that is when people actually meet each other and then begin to understand. Because in, in the strongest sense of it, the one view <coughs> and the other view represent extremes which are not descriptive of the real way that things happen how, in however limping and halting a fashion they do. And it took that meeting of the people themselves before Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln understood each other that way. 
The great problem for Lerone Bennett is that he has not had an opportunity to meet Abraham Lincoln. I think things might just be a little different. Let's get a few more questions in and then we'll wrap there's one, it up. There's one very patient person in the back who has been... He's been, he has been agitating back there, and I don't, Go ahead. That's I, don't think, I don't think we can deny him. Why should reverence be held for a man who uh, self-admittedly would not want to extend social and political equality to everyone? And in particular, what other types of equality are there? Oh, there are lots of types of equality. Social and political equality that matter. Um, and why, at the great cataclysmic event of our country, didn't he include women? All right. I'll let you take a crack at this first. You bet. Okay. Let's understand something. Lincoln, in the course of the great debates of 1858, says two things about the rights of black people. The first is that he says this in the debate at Charleston, Illinois, and it's the one most often quoted, and the one that, frankly, I put my head in my hands and say, why did Lincoln ever say that? I wished he'd never said that. That was, that was just stupid. But he says, I do not believe in the social and political equality of blacks. I'm not agitating for that. Not, I'm not pushing for that. All right, that's, oh, that's a difficult one. But what does he say afterwards? He then begins to talk about a different set of rights. He talks about natural rights. He talks about the rights in the Declaration of Independence to life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, based on equal creation. And he says to Douglas, in the right of the black man to eat the bread which he's earned by the sweat of his brow, he is my equal, Judge Douglas is equal, and the equal of every living man. Now what did Lincoln mean by that? He meant basically that there are two fundamental categories of rights. One are natural rights, and natural rights are hardwired into everybody. Everybody's, you're human, you got natural rights. Comes in the box. All right? And not only can those rights not be taken away, like life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, not only can those rights not, be, not be taken away, they're inalienable. You can't even give them away. So they're hard, that's what makes you human. Anyone, in fact, who destroys your life has made you less than human. Obviously, because then you're corpus delecti. Anyone who's taken away your liberty has destroyed your humanity. Anyone who has taken away the opportunity, the pursuit of happiness, has destroyed humanity because those are natural rights and you can't touch natural rights without dehumanizing the person. Now, the second category are social and political rights. Social and political rights vary from country to country, from state to state, from community to community. And those change. Those do not address the, the, the fundamental humanity of people. They address instead the mechanism by which political power is distributed. Now, today we recognize and we practice this distinction because we do not grant 10-year-olds the right to vote. Anyone, anyone from a state where 10-year-olds can vote? Now, if we reason that there are no other rights but social and political rights, then we would have to say that anyone who, permit, who does not extend the vote to 10-year-olds has dehumanized 10-year-olds. Now, mind you, 10-year-olds can sometimes be very, very inhuman. All right. I'm sorry, who? Locke explains why that has to be in the second treatise. Of course, because Locke understands the same distinction. And we practice it today. We do not permit 10-year-olds to drive. We don't extend certain civil and political rights to people. We do not permit nationals of other nations 
to sue in our Supreme Court because they're not citizens of the United States. It's not because we're trying to dehumanize Germans. It's not because we're trying to dehumanize Malaysians. It's because this is our polity and that's their polity and that's simply what social and political rights are. Now, we practice that all the time, but we don't recognize it. Are we dehumanizing 10-year-olds? No, because we have not taken anything away from 10-year-olds which makes them essentially human. I mean, they do that on their own, don't they? <laughs> um, now, let's take it from another angle. Can you have a situation, can you have a polity where social and political rights change? Yes, in a democratic polity, where people can lay out a brace of social and political rights and then come to a conclusion later on that, all right, that was, that was wrong, we need to include this, or we need to include the other, we need to extend to this person, we need to extend to that person. Social and political rights can change based on the democratic process of the majority. Can natural rights change? No. Because again, they're hardwired, and the moment you touch natural rights, then you have dehumanized people. Now Lincoln's, what Lincoln is saying here is, Social and political rights are up to the majority in a given system to decide. The majority can decide rightly and the majority can decide wrongly. But the majority decides because that's what happens in a democracy and you have to respect that even when the majority is wrong. But you also know that when the majority is in the wrong, if you believe it is in the wrong, nevertheless it can be changed and those social and political rights can be changed and expanded. This is what Lincoln is talking about. He is saying, the majority has decided there will not be social and political equality between the races in the state of Illinois. And you can sure bet there wasn't. So he says, that is not my aim. That is not what I am talking about. What I am talking about is natural equality. And natural equality is what forbids slavery. So let's get the subject on what the subject really is, he's saying in 1858. The subject is slavery. The subject is not whether blacks shall have the right to sit in juries or to vote in Illinois. Douglas, Stephen A. Douglas, a racist demagogue, if ever there was one, constantly kept promoting, constantly kept accusing Lincoln that way to rouse up white supremacist anger at Lincoln. Lincoln keeps saying, what is the subject? The subject here is slavery, and slavery is a denial of natural rights. That's what we need to talk about, and that is wrong. And what we are doing is dehumanizing black people because black people have that natural right to eat that bread which they earn by the sweat of their brows. Now, instead of my putting my head in my hands and saying, why did Lincoln say what he said at Charleston? I think you have to see that in 1858, all of his Republican backers were putting their heads in their hands saying, why did he say that about natural equality? because that's playing right into the hands of Stephen A. Douglas, the racist demagogue. So Lincoln was in fact putting himself out on a limb. This is an environment, this is a political society in Illinois in 1858, which doesn't just want to deny social and political equality, it wants to deny the natural equality of black people. So what Lincoln is saying is, all right, I'll accept the judgment of the majority, social and political equality we're not talking about. But I'm going to advocate the natural equality of blacks and whites. At that point, as I say, all the Republicans put their hands on their heads and say, oh, why did Lincoln say that? Well, again, it's the invisible boundaries that we're looking for. That was the invisible boundary around Lincoln's comment.
Well, it not only cost him an election, but in 1865. By 1865, Lincoln has moved to the point, after emancipation, of now actually starting to talk seriously about social and political equality. In 1864, he writes a letter to General James Wadsworth, who fought out here on the ridge at Gettysburg. Well, she says, I've taken this matter under serious consideration. I think we have to move ahead toward the extension of voting rights, equal voting rights. When he sends his deputy, Stoddard, to Arkansas, he says, get the new Arkansas legislature to write into its constitution equal voting rights. When on April 11, 1865, he delivers his last speech, he not only talks about equal voting rights in the, in, the, in the Reconstruction South, and especially in Louisiana, but about public education. In his audience is an actor named John Wilkes Booth. Booth turns to his accomplice, David Harold, and says, I know what that means. That means racial equality. I'll put him through. Three days later, that's what Booth does. Is Lincoln then a martyr, not just to the Union, but to the cause of civil rights? I think so. Douglas thought so too. And, Steve, and, and, and Frederick Douglass thought so too. Gross. Uh, let's just do one more question because it's at 840 <laughs> right now. And by the way, we're going to be able to, I think there's more to be said about this uh, Charleston uh, speech that Lincoln gives, especially that opening paragraph, uh, and why he said it, the way he said it, and the precision with which he said it. But we're going to have time to discuss those uh, uh, questions. Totally off, you know, slavery, but in the idea that Lincoln does use the expansion of federal power, you know, more than, and his use of expansion of federal power will allow us to come into the modern Era. So what I want to ask you is you had mentioned he invents the doctrine of the president and what you had meant by that. By the presidential war powers. War powers. Because up till 1860, there was no developed doctrine of presidential war powers. People knew that the Constitution said that in time of war, the president is to be commander-in-chief of the Army and Navy. The Constitution doesn't explain what that means. In fact, the Federalist Papers give varying reads on what that means. And all the way up until 1860, you had various reads on what it was supposed to be. George Washington thought it literally meant that the president would get out in the field and command. During the Whiskey Rebellion of 1795, <laughs> Washington gets up on his horse, and he's going to lead federal troops to put down the Whiskey Rebellion in western Pennsylvania. Yeah. On the other hand, other presidents, James Madison, for instance, in the War of 1812. Well, Madison's sitting in the White House when the British come along to burn it down. And he hightails it along with Dolly. Uh, not exactly a whole lot of aggressive military leadership from James Madison. And, and likewise, up until 1860, no one really knew for sure what those war powers were. And Lincoln has to invent, so to speak, the doctrine of the war powers, define what the war powers are, what the rationalization for the war powers are, and then test their exercise uh, against uh, the, the dictum of the federal court system, which was by no means friendly to his administration. All right. I think that's a terrific start.